What are cryptocurrencies? Hey, hey, hey. What are NFTs? A non-fungible token. Time to buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin just seems like a scam. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? Bitcoin! I spent the first 20 years of my career in digital music and then five years at LVMH before coming here to Ledger. And I really didn't imagine that all of my sort of past lives would, you know, smash into each other the, the way that they have um, in, in the world of in the world of crypto. I thought, um, you know, that I would I'd be spending um, maybe more time on financial products and less time thinking about the future of culture. Um, but really, the reality is, is that we lead digital lives and therefore we will have, you know, digital identities and digital value in those digital lives. Um, one of the people that I've encountered along the way is Danielle Loftus, who has a project called Drop that she's going to tell us about today. Um, and I think that that's probably exactly what we'll get into is, you know, what is the future of identity in our digital lives? So, Danny, thank you so much for, for joining us on this podcast series. Thank you so much, Ian. So, so would you uh, like to kick us off with the... Uh, um, the most important question the of the most whole important episode? Question? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the, the most important question of the entire episode is, what is the first concert that you ever saw? And then what is the most recent concert that you've been to? Okay, sure. This is, this is this was really helpful. Well, this was the surprise. Helpful. This is the surprise. <laughs> okay, so I want to say that the first concert I ever saw was either the script or Beyonce. What was the last concert I saw? Azealia Banks. I went to Azealia Banks in San Francisco in the middle of raising and it was honestly just so joyous. She's, I just, she's You needed phenomenal. the release at that moment, I'm sure. Oh, totally. And that was a really, so it was my friend and I, and that was just this really interesting, you know, I kind of call it people TV. You know, when people behave like TV and you get to just watch them. There was amazing people TV going on in front of us. There was this girl who was hooking up this other girl and then her friend got into a fight and then they started hooking up. And my friend and I were watching Azealia Banks, but then halfway through, we we're just like... <laughs> Like watching this drama unfold for like the the subsequent one and a half hours. Um, so it was Azealia plus some great people. Uh, I want to know how it ended, but I don't think we have time. So we'll leave that as a cliffhanger. <laughs> um, so tell us, you know, who you are and what is Drop? So as I said, my name's Danny, and I got into the space, I think like a lot of us in like a relatively strange way. Um, background was originally in blockchain-based fintech, then in wider innovation, have always dressed like a crazy person. So people always thought I worked in fashion. But when I was younger and I was looking at the industry, I didn't quite know where my place was in it. I was like, okay, I'm not a designer. I don't particularly just want to work in marketing to sell a group of large brands, you know, to people. What I'm really geeked out on is the slightly more avant-garde stuff, the slightly more creative stuff. And I think we were coming to this point where there was an increasing ability for large brands to build moats at the expense of younger creatives. So veered off to a totally different path, got super passionate about the social impact space, was working for a social impact fund while I was at college. And then when I was graduating, they were like, hey, 
One of our advisors is building a business lending to financially underserved populations on blockchain. Do you want to join? And I just, I was sitting on the train in New York reading a book called What is Blockchain? And this was the whole ICO boom. So I was in for that. And then when I moved back to the UK, because this was in New York, I got a job as an innovation consultant. So my job was going into large corporates and saying, here's how this emerging tech is going to change the work that you do. Here's how you should respond. And part of what I studied at college was revolutions. I was very interested, especially in behavioral change. How much can humans actually change their behaviors? And I also used to write sci-fi on the side. So the job just kind of fit perfectly for me. Other side of my life was all of my friends have always been in fashion and the arts. And so it was kind of 2019, 2020, when I started seeing very slow moves from fashion brands into the digital identity space. So The Sims and Moschino, Louis Vuitton League of Legends. And then with the pandemic, something I found fascinating was these social simulation games, which were not fashion games, Roblox, for example, becoming these places where even before the large brands went in like they are now, like UGC was being created. People were making their own Burberry hats, their own Louis Vuitton stuff. There were Instagram accounts around it. And what really led to me having this epiphany was the CMO of Gucci at the time, Robert Trophus, wrote an article in Fast Company where he said, we're going to start designing clothes to be worn digitally. And I was like, okay, obviously this makes sense. And it was the first time I'd ever thought, okay, this isn't worn on an avatar, it should be worn on a person. And thought that I would go on Instagram and see a ton of you know, edgy, cool girl influencers wearing the clothes and thought that I'd see a ton of articles in Wired and Bloomberg. I was literally nothing. So I was like, okay, you know, it's the pandemic and I'm English, so we don't really put ourselves out there a lot. But I was like, I'm going to kick myself if I don't do anything. Like I just, this is the thing that fits me most. And like someone else is going to do it and it's going to be so good. So I started a newsletter called This Outfit Does Not Exist, where I would write about digital fashion, why it was going to change the world, how it was going to change the world. But I knew that whilst my friends in tech or VC or whatever would like the newsletter, none of my friends in fashion or art would even care. So I was like, okay, this needs to be visual as well. So found, you know, the three or four companies that were in the space at the time, all of them had started a couple of months before me and was just like, listen, I have an Instagram account with no followers, but you know, you guys have 300 followers and I'm doing this project and I'm going to be the first person to commit to wearing only digital clothes on social media. And the way I used to do it is I would link the outfits back to the message of the newsletter. So it'd be like talking about digital design, this piece of clothing was made completely with AI, for example. And so started that, everyone thought I was crazy. And next boyfriend of mine texts me being like, oh, are you going to ask for an imaginary million dollars for those imaginary pieces of clothing? Um, so no one really got it. Well, like a couple of people got it, but everyone was just like, okay, Danny's doing some weird thing. And then I got lucky because five or so months later, the NFT boom happened. Wait, and before you get to that, I, I want to, uh, I'd like to capture this because I think you know more about this than, than you know, most people I've ever, ever spoken to. And I think our, our listeners might, you know, might find this kind of prehistory interesting. So I don't want to, um, I don't want to lose it. Um, you know, you, you presented sort of an interesting dichotomy there that there's this activity that's happening in the world of gaming, right? That, that feels um, relatively mature, or at least sort of like known, accepted by, by the players, etc. Um, 
But, you know, you tried to go beyond that. And there were just sort of a few crazy people, you and a couple other brands out there um, that, that were doing this. Can, can you just like contextualize that for us a, a little more like sort of pre NFT boom? What was digital fashion? Is it was it just gaming and then a few other crazy people? Like, is that is that accurate? Who were those people? And then I guess also I'm thinking about sort of you know what's interesting, though, is that at the same time, it was only a few crazy people. You had, you know, Gucci going, hey, we're going to develop, you know, clothing that's only be made to wear digitally. So was that just provocative? Was that the shape of things to come? So you know, and what about and the final question? This is what about Lil oh, Michaela? I lo- I like, love- help me contextualize what happened. Okay, so help like so again, draw that picture for us again. Pre NFTs, there was pre NFTs, there was in game skins, and so in game skins were you know a thing as early as nineteen seventy five when you literally could have just some pixelated dots on clothing to delineate identity, and then obviously the skins market grew, but I think what was really crucial and one of the first interviews I ever did was with this amazing Japanese magazine. And I asked, you know, is digital fashion a thing in Japan? There's this massive gaming market. And it was this idea of, no, fashion people think gaming is for nerds. And gamers, on the other hand, yes, there was the Sims X Moschino, but gamers in general, on the other hand, they see or saw fashion as something very, very snobby, very, very exclusive. And I think something Ian, you and I talk about, they're also wasn't the context because clothing demands context. So I don't think if you rocked up in a head-to-toe LVMH skin in World of Warcraft, anyone would give you the time of day. If anything, you would get slated of that in the same way that even if you rocked up in a ninja skin from Fortnite. So there was this idea that gaming is for nerds. Fashion is for a totally different group of people. And so just two worlds that weren't two worlds that weren't connected. And I also think for fashion brands, maybe there was also just no interest. Like there was a slow interest because I think one of the things that we've seen and are seeing in gaming that's fascinating is a shift from gaming being challenge-based. So I'm in this game to go on a quest or complete X, Y, Z to the social simulation model, which is more like this is just a world that I hang out in. And that's what's interesting about worlds like Roblox, because... During the pandemic, I was fascinated by all the stuff going on in Roblox because, example, weird example, um, read a whole article in Wired on how dominatrixes were going into Roblox and getting their submissives to do tasks like gardening. Crazy. People were using it as like funeral sites for their loved ones. T-Pain did a tour of his crib. So it's more like you are giving these players the ability to do whatever they want as they would in a certain world. You're not saying this is how you get points. And then you saw basically economies and cultural sites spring up from users and fashion then became a big one in there. So I think during the pandemic, we saw, that's when we started seeing the shift. In terms of who else was in, there was, oof, Carlings. There was a company which worked with Vice's creative agency. I think this was around 2019 and sold a virtual fashion collection where you could send in a photo of yourself and get it rendered on. That was one of the first examples. And obviously it got a ton of media. It was a media play and it was a media play allegedly around sustainability, but it was a great media play. That was there, Fabricant was there, but they now have a marketplace. They were previously operating as an agency. 
They sold the first ever digital dress as an NFT, I believe in 2019, went for $9,500 at the time in the relevant cryptocurrency. And that was everywhere, you know, virtual dress sells for this much money. Then we had a tribute brand that I think started three or four months before me. And they were a massive part of me coming in because what I've always been quite particular about is I want my clothes to look a certain way, but they need to be rendered properly. What I mean by that is they need to, if you're going to convince anyone from a fashion audience, they cannot look like you're a Polly Pocket doll and someone has stuck something on your body. It needs, the rendering needs to be super high quality. It needs to look realistic. And I remember Tribute had like 10 photos of their Instagram and there was one of this girl on the, on the sofa in this iridescent green dress. And I was like, okay, okay, wow. If any of my friends in fashion saw that, it would knock them out of the park. And so they were super important in bringing me in. DressX, I was a big feature on the website for some time because they had no other real photos of anyone wearing stuff. They had five items when I started. So there was a tiny group who were saying, okay, you know, we're going towards a social media space. Plus the kind of the marketing forays into gaming. So the League of Legends one, for example, that was actually around an esports tournament. So the trophy was League of Legends. So it wasn't selling digital skins, but it was them putting their stamp on an entirely new consumer group. And then what's so fascinating in terms of Gucci is around a year later, I had people consulting for Gucci coming back to me and asking what Gucci should be doing. And I was like, I thought you guys were going to be the first movers. I thought I thought you had a plan. So I think it may have just been. I thought yeah, you're, you guys are the ones that inspired me to move faster in this, and now like full circle. Yeah. And I think now they're really doing tremendous stuff. They've been super experimental. But I think I think from my limited knowledge of Robert Trophis, he's very very forward thinking. So I think it was more of a kind of this is what we're going to do, maybe without any clear plan of what to do it, how to do it. I think what's crucial to just mention, especially in the FWB ledger context is these clothes are not NFTs. So I, one of my first essays that I wrote in, I think, March or April 2021 was an ownership analysis. So I wrote, here are the five or six ways you buy your digital fashion. And I rated them, I want to say one to five, could have been around one, could have been one to seven on the value. So it was like, for example, AR filter, what do you get? In-game clothing, what do you get? How can you use it? And I rated it against metrics like, can you trade it? Can you modify it? Can you share it? And all of these companies that were rendering fashion onto me, you pay for, you're paying for a photo of yourself. So it was only an influencer economy model. And even then, you know, obviously having a blockchain background, I was like, These, this should all be NFTs. But at the time, what an NFT was, was if you were buying a fashion NFT, you were buying an image of a garment. Steffi Fung has been in the space for a long time. She's a phenomenal creator. And what you were buying from her, who was one of the most you know, well-known prestigious creators, was an amazing video of a garment in motion. But you couldn't interact with it like a piece of clothing. And for me, that was fashion photography. And so that's, that's where we were pre- it's fashion photography with augmented reality. Super, that, that's, that's super interesting. And I think it's a great um, kind of reminder of 
the well we haven't really talked about the fundamentals of kind of you know what is fashion here so let's let's actually um let's actually pause on on that for a second and then we can come back to what you're doing now so what i love about your background is that you know your I, I know there's something that resonates with me because i ended up you know working in digital music not not you know because i wanted to be in the music business but because i love i happen to study computer science and i love music you know i mean you know the the thing that i think is very similar about your background is you know you're you're someone who you know worked in tech worked in innovation emerging tech blockchains and loves fashion and you know through your passion kind of managed to put together you know what you know professionally with with what you love um you know with what your passion is and 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 put those things together um so, you know, but also I'm sure that you've had to think a lot about, well, what is fashion? Like, what actually is it? Um, so how, how do you define fashion? Um, and, 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 you know, because I assume that for you, that definition can span physical and digital easily, where I think for many people in the fashion business, that's a much more difficult leap for them. Completely. For me, it's quite simply... Art which is worn on your body or close to your body that expresses your identity. It's all an identity play. And I think something that I've been thinking about a lot that I think you'll resonate with is how much digital art is now fashion, given that I can whip my phone out at any time and show somebody my gallery. Or best example ever, Ledger Stacks. Ledger Stacks is a fashion item. It's an accessory. You have been driving people to put ledgers on chains. Ledger stack on ledger stacks on a chain with your dead fellas or your punk exhibited fashion item, hundred percent. So I think I think if you boil it down to identity, because as you know, you and I have discussed many many times, we no longer make decisions about our clothes based on their practical value. It's boiling in London. I haven't, you know, I didn't say this is the only available thing that I have to wear that is cool enough. And I could have gotten this dress or I could have got one for $10 or I could have got one for $2,000. And what would influence my decision is when something was made, where something was made, how it was made, who it was made by. And with the proliferation of companies like Sheen and ultra fast fashion, we have more choice than ever. So what really leads to your purchasing decisions is, is how do I convey my identity? How do I self-express? How do I show my affiliations with various groups or communities? And how do I state a signal within those groups? And I think if that's what you boil fashion down to, I think the idea of some type of bodily interaction is interesting and important because otherwise it's, it's an artwork. I think it has to be some way attached to your, your person. But I think that's the core of what fashion is, which then obviously leads to an increased kind of understanding of what digital fashion is and why these objects are so important in virtual spaces. Um, yeah, I mean, as, as you and I have talked about many, many times, I think that there are many people um, that who work in fashion that actually, you know, mischaracterize it. Um, Zoe and I did a, a, a very fun interview with Brice Partouche um, from Satisfy, and he does such a great job talking about um, all of the culture that goes around a brand. Right. You know, not not just kind of the identity. And, you know, when I wear this, I I um, I look like this. But when I wear this, I actually communicate a sense of belonging to a certain group of people. 
Um, so uh, maybe you could combine the, the where you've gone, because I think what's also interesting about about your story and what I what I would love to know is I, I think, it um, you know, so you've had this path from taking your interest, uh, you know, to. Uh, to really like investing in the space, believing in the space, investing in the space, which I think also allowed you to do a lot of your own research um, in, into, you know, what is it, what isn't. And then ultimately, um, you started your own brand, um, which you intend to, which, which you intend to, you know, is just a start, which as we know, brands take, you know, very long time to grow. So it's, it's, it's at the beginning. But I'd be really curious to understand, like, what you saw in the market and what you believe that opportunity is and, you know, how does it how does it grow over the next you know, few years, bear market and beyond? Totally. So one of the best things, one of the most beautiful, most fortunate things that happened to me was through my writing, you know, back when I had 200 or so subscribers on Substack, that's it. Andy Wiseman, who is one of the managing partners at Union Square Ventures, found my writing and started, you know, emailing me being like this is cool and we had this chat and we got on so well and he was like I want to co-invest with you and we were then going to spin up our own DAO to invest in digital fashion because no one was doing it and I'd written this manifesto and all of that and then Red DAO was spun out by Flamingo DAO which is obviously one of the most prolific art collection DAOs and Andy called me and was like listen do you want to come in and to this DAO instead and I was like okay yeah I would love to and One of the biggest learnings that I had through being in red that has now been validated over and over again a million times by, you know, collecting in the generative art space, being part of communities like Art Blocks, Bright Moments, blah, blah, was just this really funny phenomena where, and I don't think anyone in Red Dow will take offense at this, but out of our 50 or so members, not a lot of them know about fashion. This is a group of people who thought fashion was an interesting vertical. Maybe they are in the gaming space, but would not be near trad fashion if it had not, like, you know, zero. And I also think, you know, to be totally frank, it was also a bunch of dudes. Like, and that is so not what I would have initially expected. And especially after what would have been indicated or maybe would have been my thesis if I just looked at my Instagram, where I have, you know, 14,000 people who follow me because of my work in digital fashion. Something that I realized was that those 14,000 people, they might follow me and they might think the work that I do is cool. Are they going to say that instead of buying, let's say a Chanel bag for $2,000, they're going to buy one of my NFTs for $2,000? No, they're not. Because if we go back to this principle of fashion as a status signaling mechanism, as a signaler of identity, those around them are not going to say, oh, I understand what this means about you and I think it's cool that you have X, Y, Z. But the whole of crypto Twitter is based on that underlying principle. It's people tweeting out, you know, look, I bought a him in. Look, I have a squiggle. Look, my squiggle is my email signature. So there is a bunch of men in general who have never engaged with fashion before, who all of a sudden were saying, okay, this could be an interesting asset class. And they were already behaving like fashion consumers at the very core because they are presenting something about themselves to convey their identity. So... That was one of the most interesting learnings for me. And I think it was also, I don't think that's going to be true forever. I think my business is pretty screwed if that's true forever. But I think it will take time. I, Ian, I would actually love to know how you feel about this. But my thesis is not that 
35 or 40 year old plus luxury consumers, the people who are the biggest LVMH consumers, the people who are at fashion weeks are going to pivot into the NFT space. I, I think it's a lost cause. It's not their status signaling mechanism. There would have to be so much groupthink. And I think the reason that that groupthink actually you know, penetrated a male market, and I think something we're seeing a lot in the current market is there was a whole thing around financial speculation. Same as trading stocks, it was clout. Look at my board ape, look at how much money I've made, look at how much money that's worth, which due to various social factors has traditionally been a male behavior pattern. Yes, the art blocks thesis of came for the flipping stage for the art. Yeah, it's true for some people. The art blocks community actually has a really amazing core group of people who are now really nerded out on art. But the majority of people pretended they, they cared about these communities, but really it was an underlying flex of look how much money I've made. And you do not say, see the same thing with fashion communities. Um, and I would notice that my female friends were not talking about this in the same way. So I think there's a very interesting phenomena where I think our buyer base is coming. I think our buyer base is probably at the moment 15 or 16 years old. I just literally this morning did a talk at Graduate Fashion Week. So cool, like watching you know, young kids be like, how do I work in digital fashion? But even that generation, the generation below them, some insane proportion of them are spending all of their time in Roblox. And when I thought of the idea for this outfit to not exist, I was with my family at Christmas. I was with my younger cousins. And I said this idea to the adults, and they were all kind of like, eh. And my younger cousins were like, yeah, obviously I spend all this money in, in Fortnite. So I think our consumer base is growing up. And I think actually something important to differentiate on is a collector base versus a consumer base. If you look at our first collection, we have quite a lot of whales who have bought the pieces. Do I think they're ever gonna wear them? No, I would love for them to, but I, I do not think they will be. So I think we're going to start finding a consumer base where it's more, it's not about necessarily consuming a cultural asset or an asset that will go up in value, but actually, hey, I want to stay to signal or, or I want to wear this. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I think that's why I wanted to get your take, which is like, how does it evolve from where it is today, which I completely agree with, with your summary of it, is that it is, a, it is kind of a collector mentality. Right. Um, in other words, like the question is, what is the utility today? And some of that utility is collecting it, putting it in a gallery, um, you know, being an owner of something which is which is rare. Um, and uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, that, that certainly over time that shifts. I think you're right. It's generational. We see that even with Ledger. Right. I mean, I, I went to a friend's wedding. He's my age. Him and all of our friends you know, that are, that are my age think, oh, Ian's a nerd. We don't understand what he does. And the groom who was like 27 was like, dude, you work at Ledger? And he's like to all of his, the groomsmen, he's like, he works at fucking Ledger, man, shit. You know what I mean? So like that generational difference is like very, very, very present in just the world of kind of digital life, I would say. I don't even think kind of crypto. It's like a very big dividing line in digital life. And I do think that, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, look at look at the the market for handbags um, is not small. Uh, and it is, you know, nobody buys handbags, you know, or luxury handbags for their utility, right? They buy them, they do buy them on some level for the same reason that you would put them in, in your gallery. It does show belonging, it shows status, identity, all the things you said. Um, you know, and I think even for women, it is a bit of a flex, right? It means something, you know, to, to have an Hermes. 
you know, versus you know, versus uh, a Mark Jacobs, right? So, and and that's known within the communities, um, you know, who who look. So there's there's certainly uh, you know something there, and I think, but I think that the the change that has to happen is that it that it ultimately has to come into our digital lives, right? And that's and that's a question I'd like um, for you to, to exp- expand upon maybe later. Um, but there, I think there's something else that you touched on that I can't get out of my head. And that is that, you know, what you're saying when you're talking about, you know, collecting a piece from drop, even though it's a dress or a hat or pants, is a lot like collecting um, a an art blocks drop, right? It, it does have... You know, not only is it very similar in the way that I do it, the way that I display it, right? Um, maybe, the, maybe the the you know the utility as as well. But I also think that says something about the creativity itself and the art. Um, you know, what I've realized is that you know we talk about music, we talk about fashion, we talk about art, um, and I think those are much more distribution terms than they are terms of art, right? I think artists have always transcended those boundaries. And what what distributors or companies have done is they've said, you know, if it's if it's uh, you know, if it's a, a silver plastic disc and with 72 minutes of music, it goes in the music store. I said this in another one of our podcasts with Zoe. If it hangs on a coat rack, it goes in the fashion store. And if it hangs on a wall of a gallery, it's art. Right. I mean, it's much more about like helping the business. And I think what great artists have always done is transcend those boundaries and so I think that's where it might get really blurry, right? Because if I am, you know, is is Kanye West a fashion designer, an artist, or or a musician, right? Yes, he is. Um, and and so you know, I think that that's the other thing that that I I'm excited about, frankly, because I think that um, I think that artists will will transcend those boundaries, and I think that you've already done it. You have um, a, you've you've done digital clothing with with fine art on them from an artist I collected before I collected anything from, from drop. Um, and you know, I could absolutely see you doing something that has a musical component to it. And so now what is that? Is that fashion music or art? Yes, it is. Right. And I think that that's the great thing about this delivery mechanism is that you, you know, you, that you have, that you have that opportunity. Um, so I don't know if you, if you want to respond to that and, and then, and then I'll, I'll then we can go well, into more actually, questions. We have, I, so. I have a, I'll, I'll just follow up with like an actual question to that. So like for me, when I'm thinking about this space, you know, I am not a gamer. So I, and I, but I have like, so when I was reading all about this, I was just trying to kind of like imagine how this all works, like the functionality of this. So if I, if I then, own a piece from drop, right? Like, can you explain a little bit about how you see the functionality of that, right? Like what is the utility past ownership and like where, what are the first kind of like wearable environments that you, that you see this breaking into? Like what's the low hanging fruit there for people? Totally. And I can answer both of these kind of in the same breath. So I think one of my core learnings from looking, from being in red, from looking at the way that we talk about things, and also just from looking at who's spending money. You know, I heard some statistics that I can't actually repeat, but earlier today from somebody around some other digital fashion companies that are aiming at the type of market that follows me on Instagram, and the revenues are absolutely minute. So my thesis, which I think is less of a valid thesis than it would have been six months ago, but still actually is a valid thesis, 
that the people collecting these clothes at the moment are not buying them to wear, but buying them in the same way as art, I think is actually very valid. And so then I think what we really looked at is originally when we were building out the platform, we weren't planning to build out a brand. I was planning to build digitally native Dover Street Market. So I was like, I'm going to have a small collection of brands who I think are the best of the best. And I'm going to storytell for them. And what we're also going to have is we're going to have a digital wardrobe. And I think we need to think of a better word than wardrobe because I don't think it actually really encapsulates it because it was more like, if I'm a collector, what is going to make me connect with this clothing? So it's like, can I have the V&A on my screen, basically? If I'm never going to wear this, what is going to make me establish a collection or feel proud to own it? And that's partially due to the limitations, which are the majority of proto-metaverses or games that let digital fashion in do not do those clothes justice. If I have a piece from Drop, which, as Ian said, first collaboration was with Nicholas Sassoon, very intricate Moiré prints. If that was voxelized, it would probably look like absolute crap. So I was like, okay, before we get there, let's just start by having this optimized collector space as a wardrobe. And then over time, let's build out the integration. So let's build out premium integrations. And I'm going to completely and utterly massacre this quote. But one of the best things that I've listened to in a very long time was the Acquired LVMH podcast. And it was this idea that at some point, Bernard Arnault said, okay, we actually need to control the stores that we're selling our, our clothes in. It's not good enough to just have it in a mall. We need a store in a mall. And it was this idea that if you control your distribution, you control your image. So what you can do right now with a drop garment from our first collection is you have one of these proprietary digital wardrobes. You can see your pieces. You can see them as full 3D objects because they are not just static clothing. The Moiré will move. You can interact with them. And you can download them as a 3D file and upload them onto Snap and upload them into a virtual world. I think what is crucial and what was a debate in the team was there was a part of me that went, we shouldn't give people those rights right now. Because if somebody uploads one of our pieces to Snapchat and it looks like shit, that's going to be horrible for us as a brand. I only want it integrated where it will look the best. But then there was a whole debate of, but then it's not really free. You don't have that same freedom. If I'm a fashion brand in the real world, I cannot control how somebody styles my piece of clothing. Somebody could buy something from Louis Vuitton and like cut it up and make it look like, you know, horrific. Or one of my best examples, Mischief with the Birkenstocks, where they cut up the Birkins and made them into Birkenstocks. You know, I could do whatever I want. And so what I would like is in time, I would like you to be able to go into a drop digital wardrobe and wear an AR through a partnership that we have, which will guarantee your garment is optimized and looks the best it possibly can. Same thing with games. But for right now, you can do that yourself. We just have no guarantees on how it will look. And the final component, which I think speaks a little bit more to maybe a more traditional NFT collector. And I think if it hasn't become clear, one of the most crucial things about our platform is we are not making an assumption that anybody wants fashion for a specific reason. You could want it to collect and never wear it in your life. You could want it to wear as a social media influencer on Instagram. You could want to wear it in a game. Maybe you want to wear it to modify it. We don't necessarily know. And so around that and also around the dichotomy in the market, we want to at some point roll out rental protocols where, for example, big collector of ours is G Money. 
Gimani has a really, really fantastic dress from our collection. I doubt G is going to wear it. Just could. I would love him to, but I doubt it. But he could rent it to an influencer and they could wear it on TikTok. And something that I'm already kind of chewing over is, actually, could we plug that back into the virtual wardrobe and give it more value? So if... I'm now going to prove I'm so old. I don't know the name of any TikTok influencers. If, insert name of famous TikTok influencer here, wore G-Money's dress, and then somehow that video got brought back to G-Money's wardrobe as a provenance piece, it could raise the value. And hypothetically, let's say he rented it out. Even like, yeah, if he rented it out 50 times to $10, he's getting $500 or whatever. So it's a financialization mechanism and a provenance mechanism and a wearership mechanism. So I think that's super important. And I think the other thing that kind of Ian, you touched on, which also relates back to the creator base and the collector base is part of the reason we decided to create a brand because we were originally gonna bring other people on the platform was I realized that there were not any digital fashion brands that were resonating with the people currently spending money on digital clothes. No, on digital goods, digital goods, full stop. And so our brand drop, first of all, it uses generative systems, which it was resonate, resonant for me on the one hand, because one of the best communities I've spent time in is the Artblocks community. Bright Moments community actually is also phenomenal. And what I really loved about that community was that it was a group of people who geek out and speak about artwork in the way that a collector who had studied at Sotheby's or Christie's spoke about artwork. And I was like, okay, wow, you know, this is more than just like, when ape going to moon, this is, this is a really interesting group of people who have engaged with this culture. I want people to speak about fashion in that same way. And also that this group of people saw code as craft. So I was like, okay, number one, these are principles that I respect. But secondly, the reason that you buy an Okutra item is because you get a one-off piece from a brand. What you can do with a generative algorithm is you can create a piece that is completely unique to the owner, but tied to everything else in the collection with a shared algorithmic thread. Most obvious parallel for me. So that's part of the reason we went into that. And then I think the final point that you made me think about, which is in terms of where the market is going. I think one of the hardest things about where we are in digital fashion right now is that the most obvious market of people who understand and are using the tech is Instagram and Snap. It's social media with human beings on screens using filters. However, one of the things that you have to compete against as you know, an up and coming brand is that we just did our AR poncho. That was $40. How many Instagram or Snap filters could somebody just get for free if they just wanted to wear digital fashion? Millions. So what actually has to happen for you to succeed in the market that's going on right now is you need to build a strong enough digital brand that it means something to wear it digitally instead of someone saying, okay, I could buy something from Drop, but I could also have a cool filter for free on Snapchat or Instagram. So I think that's also why brand is such a crucial thing at this stage of the game in you know the five, 10-year market. Do you think that like when you're building a digital brand like this and thinking about how to make your audience bigger, like is there, how do you see value, if at all, in kind of coupling the digital with a physical good just to kind of like get people to break in, you know, people like to collect things, right? And now people are going to start to collect digital things is like part of the onboarding 
potentially like coupling a digital with a physical to kind of you know you know sweeten the pot or like how do you think you kind of expand the audience so it's such an interesting question we've decided to go fully digital the only and it's been interesting because every collection that we create is in collaboration with the digital artist and they design one element for us in the similar way that as a couturier you'd say I want the best embroiderer the best tailor the best creative director but we're really not making fan much Nicholas Assoon, we speak to him three, like, three times a week for the past eight months. Like, we are that close to the artists, and we want it to be an extension of their practice. What's been interesting in conversations we've been having recently is more and more artists have said, hey, but can we have a physical? And I've been very dubious about it for a couple of reasons. First of all, we have said we're a digital fashion house, and that means digital. Um, secondly, something that I think is fascinating that I've seen happen to a couple of digital fashion brands doing physicals is no one knows how much a digital thing costs. Literally no one knows. We just, it, every, obviously everything in the world costs as much as you make it, but there are very few points of reference and we're just coming out of a crazy NFT boom. So whilst I have not had anyone say to me, you sold dresses for 0.4 ETH, that's $900, I wouldn't buy a $900 dress. There was... There have been other collections that I've seen which have been $500 for a t-shirt? No way, I could get a t-shirt from Zara for $10. So that is a problem. It's people's mental models which need to catch up. And I also think, I think looking at the market, I think the type of people who would buy a physical with a digital component couldn't really care less about the digital component and will kind of just forget about it. The only instance that I've seen that I've, that's really actually changed my mind or inspired me was Ishmael at Tram, which I'm mispronouncing, and you can pronounce properly Tram. Um, Tram. Ish- I'm so French. Ah, oui, Tram. Um, and what I love that they did is they did these tapestries with Alexis Andre, who's a phenomenal digital creator, who, fun trivia fact, has previously worked with Izzy Miyake. Um, and what I believe it was is I believe it was a Dutch auction of the digital art piece, and the first eight, so highest bidders, got a tapestry that was physical. And I love that as a model because I was like, this is a digital artwork and the physical is somewhat secondary. This is not a physical thing with a digital counterpart. So I think maybe we'd consider that kind of model. And I think another person who did it well was Charlie Cohen because Charlie had these restless shirts at Beta, but you were, you were buying the digital fashion. No one was saying, hey, this is my Charlie Cohen t-shirt that I bought for X amount of money. So I think she did it well. But I would only go into it if the digital was a complement. I mean, the physical was a complement to the digital, not the other way around. So tell us, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about drop and the thinking of how you how you got there. I'm, get, us, get into some of the specifics for us. What was the first drop? How did it work? What did you learn? And then what do you have coming next? So the first drop was um, a Nicholas Soon collaboration. As I said, the model is every single collection is created with a digital artist. That is for the craft element. So that's one of the most crucial things. I am trying to demonstrate that digital fashion is craft-based because it rubs fashion people up the wrong way because it's scalable, it's automated, and it's accessible. Whereas traditional fashion is skill-based, artisanal, and exclusive. And what I was trying to prove is you can be both. And I think this is something that I will have to work on and work on educating people on, 
for many, 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 many years. And it's one of the most important things we're trying to do as a company. But part of doing that is collaborating with these renowned creators. Nicholas has been working making pixel patterns for the past 15 years. He has been in museums like the V&A. He has both a NFT audience, but also a traditional audience. And I think what's fascinating in terms of actually craft, if you look at, it, look at um, Nicholas, is he does these Moira prints actually manually on Photoshop. So he puts the layers together manually. So it's super like trad crafty for the digital space. And the reason we chose Nicholas was we are not trying to make artists fan much. This is really meant to be an extension of their work and a collaboration. So our short list of artists is all based on how is fashion an extension of their existing practice. For Nicholas, it was his use of Moiré. So Moiré prints are these phenomena that we see in our everyday life when there's a misalignment of two layers. So you might see a random pattern crop up while you walk past a fence or on your computer screen. But what's amazing about it is they actually originated in textiles. The word Moiré comes from a watered textile which was around in the 17th and 18th century, that created this kind of pattern. Now, it's most commonly seen on screens, but most interestingly, actually, it's clothing on screens that produces Moiré most commonly. So we were like, okay, narratively, this is great. Nicholas has also worked with Uniglo, with Balenciaga, with Wings and Horns. So it was such an extension. And we had one, our first meeting with him, he agreed to do it. So that was brilliant. And the, the component he designed was these layers. And... We then devised our own generative system, and it is, I know everyone in digital fashion likes to say it's the first and it's a bit lame, but like really this is the first time that a collection has been produced generatively. And what I think what was interesting for me was if I was creating a piece of generative artwork for art blocks, things like the color is generative and, you know, there are native traits, but I think what's interesting is we created fashion native traits. So the amount of folds on a garment that's also a generative property of our collection. And the way actually the Moiré layers interact, so how far they are, how close they are, their alignment, also a trait that we put in. And we also talked about these traits with Nicholas in terms of how he wanted these to be designed. So it was very collaborative. And that dropped three or so weeks ago with the launch of the platform. So the proprietary digital wardrobe, you bought it through us as well. And it fell into five categories. We had coats which were pre-sold. Ian has a really fantastic coat. We had, and those were short form, everything else was long form. We had um, dresses, pants, tops, hats, all in various quantities, like a fashion collection. And then what we did recently was we also did a wearable open edition. So the thing that I was discussing with you before, which was the fact that with anything from the main collection, you can download it re-upload it where it is you like, but I can't guarantee to you the quality is going to be maybe where you want it to be. This we partnered with an amazing company called Zero Ten, who as a fashion influencer in digital fashion I've worked with for ages and just for me their body tracking is the best anyone has. So that's the idea of it being premium and optim optimized and we did an open edition with Zora. So that closed yesterday. And in terms of learning, a couple things that like I think are super significant. First of all, I think we shouldn't have done so many item types. We treated this like a fashion collection. You could have bought one of five item types. And I think something that I've talked about a lot is how this is currently honed largely towards an NFT buyer. Normally what you have as an NFT buyer is you have an object with a slight variation from a different object. 
I think it may have been a little bit analysis paralysis for people to be like, do I get a dress or do I get a hat or do I get a this? As opposed to just saying this is one item type that because it is generative, we'll have variation, that's it. And so as we move into our future drops, especially in the early stage, because I think obviously as we move into like, as the market progresses, doing a collection is doing a collection. This is a fashion brand. But I think keeping it simpler for people is super valuable. I also think we overshot the mark on quantity. We managed to um, launch on the worst week for NFTs, according to Carly Riley in my inbox on the morning that we launched. I was like, wow, this is phenomenal. So I think really, you know, we're doing more drops throughout the year. And what I've said to the team is I'm like, smaller quantities, same level of craft and storytelling, crucial. We will never compromise on that. Same collaboration with artists, but like instead of 648 pieces, what if we do... 50 or 60 pieces, okay, just shirts, just this. And maybe they come together to make a collection, but like much smaller, much snappier, whilst we wait for the market to warm up and also mature. So I think those are two learnings. And I actually think, Ian, something that you'll find really interesting that I've been looking at a lot. What, so Charlie Cohen, who we were also on a podcast with yesterday, who is just in general, she's one of just the best founders in the space. She executes unbelievably well. She also thinks strategically. She's like, she's one of, so impressive. And what my team and I noticed was if you go on OpenSea, she also did a drop with Claire Silver. So in a similar way to us, she's very collaborative with artists. If you go on OpenSea, you can see the Claire Silver work. You don't see the clothes. And I think there's something very interesting around that. And we, Nicholas suggested, before we'd even seen that work or that drop had happened, we did the same with the OE. So it looks like you are buying a Nicholas Soon artwork which, oh, it's also a cape. I don't know if as a company we're necessarily going to take that same stance because I want, this is digital fashion and I want you to want it because it's fashion. But I think it's just very interesting how it's important to warm up the market by giving them something they kind of understand before moving them to understanding they are now fashion consumers. I think that's just an important point to make. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the human brain wants a combination of familiarity and novelty. <laughs> so you go too far off the reservation and it's abstract and you you go too familiar and it's it's uh, derivative. And, you know, so finding that sweet spot in what is really an emerging space with a, with a relatively small number of aficionados or collectors or people who appreciate it, I think is uh, I, I think is is tough. So I, I really um, applaud you for, for innovating it, for finding it. And that's exactly why I asked the question the way that I did, which is, you know, what have you done? What did you learn? And now what are you going to do next? Right? Because, you know, this is, this is the, uh, this is the iteration. Um, we're coming up at the, at the, at the top of the hour. I know, see, you had a, a question I think you wanted to ask before yeah, we go to I have, the, I have one, go to the... one final question, um, which is, so, so I am actually like a, I am a knitter. Um, so I spent a lot of time knitting with people in Portland because Portland, Oregon is cool like that. Um, but I was thinking about that when I was thinking about drop and thinking like, okay, well, this is a thing that we do, right? It's like a slow, not cheap, crafty hobby, right? And I love like hearing you talk about kind of the the craft, right? And I think there is going to be that discrepancy of the like tactile craft. And are we losing that, 
right is going to be a thing. I don't, and, and, and I don't think that that's necessarily, you know, the case, but I think, I wonder if you've thought about like, what is the crafting in this space, right? Because the training that you need to build digital fashion is, you know, animation or design, like digital design. So like, how does that shift? Like, how do you start crafting being a crafter in the digital space? Such, such a beautiful question. I think on a basic level, it's what software are you using? One of the best pieces of advice I got when I was hiring my 3D designer was do like if somebody knows Clo3D, which is a clothing specific software, it's whatever. If they know Houdini, it's a different story. And our head of 3D, Nick, who is genuinely one of the most talented people ever, I feel like working for us must be the biggest ego boost. Everything he creates, we're like, stop, what is this? How did you make it? He has a visual, visual effects background. And we use Houdini, which is the most complicated 3D software because you basically code it. Um, and I think... And to go back to the, the statement that I made about, um, about art blocks, generative systems, which for anybody who doesn't know, it's essentially just creating a system which then goes on to create art. So amazing example that I found was that the Greeks used generative systems when they put a harp outside and allowed the wind to blow over it. They are fascinating and they are craft massively because what you are doing is you are saying, I'm going to create a system that is going to make certain decisions within these parameters for me. And what is important there is the worst decision still needs to come out with something that looks beautiful. So if we would have just said, we're going to design a digital fashion collection, our lives would have been pretty easy. Instead, we have designed a system that designs a digital fashion collection. And so, example, you know, the Moiré positioning, the number of folds, the color palettes, that is completely randomized. You are creating... The, you know, you're creating the components and then you're basically like rolling it into a bingo machine and like pulling something out. So what I love about the art blocks collectors is they have the ability to say, wow, that generative system is really impressive. And I think that's very exciting. And I think this, so our motto is code is the couture. And something that I'm super excited about is we are actually starting our own podcast, speaking to people doing this around that craft thing. It's not craft if nobody understands it. So a lot of our work as a company and my work is being like, this is why it's craft. Here you go. Here's somebody else who did it. That's why they think it's craft. And it will be for a long time. But for me, this idea of generative systems is one of the first instances. But I think there are so many others. And actually being able to program something well and that's compelling and tells a story, I think it's core to craft. I think the one thing that I'll also say that I think is an overlay to that is the as you probably know as a knitter, like craft is not enough. You are not just blindly knitting being like, this was the decision I made today was just a decision to knit. You're thinking, what am I making? Why am I making it? How am I making it? And I think in the NFT industry, we went through a stage of just people being like, here's some tech, here you go, this is cool. And some other people being like, that is cool tech. But actually, where's the story? It's the narrative that makes it art. And so what I would love for all of our collections is yes, to use code in an interesting way, Yes, to be craftful and to explain it, but also to use that craft to tell a certain story that's different with every single collection that we produce. I love that you're doing that with a podcast, by the way. I really feel like, you know, when I went out to Beeple's uh, studio, I felt like that was, that was what he was doing. Um, I asked him once uh, back last fall, I said, you know, 
how much of the value of your work do you think is your name and how much of it is your art? And um, he said, actually, I think at this point, probably a lot of it is the name and, and kind of the, the, the notoriety. But he said, I think that that will change over time because over time, the other work that I've done, like every days and video loops, et cetera, will start to have more context and more appreciation. So people will understand what I do in, in the context of digital art. You know, they won't be comparing it to the art of yesterday. They'll be, you know, comparing it to my, my peers, you know, who have been creating, you know, since the 80s and 90s, the, the same as me, and with the tools that I use, you know, like computers, etc. Um, and I, and I, then I went, you know, many months later, you know, back in, in March, I went to, to his studio. And when I walked through the, the or I, I guess it's really a gallery is what you would call it. And when you walk through the gallery, I went, Oh, well, there it is, he is creating the context. Um, and showing you, you know, this is what I created when I was young. Here's the everydays. Here's um, my work, you know, transposed into oil, you know, and so he's, he's, since others aren't, you know, necessarily creating the context for his art, he's creating it. And so I love that you're, you're doing that it makes total sense to be kind of creating the context um, for digital fashion in, in kind of the way that you always have. Um, you know, but, but that's just, that's a, that's probably a life's work. Right. And I think that that also relates to me. Um, you know, I mean, when I started doing digital music, it was science fiction. And when I stopped, it was on every iPhone. Um, I think when we talked to Brice Pratouch, uh, on, about Satisfy, it's clear that, you know, he's, he's, you know, not driven by, you know, a get rich quick mentality. He's, he's got a mission and he is, um, you know, he's, he's not going to stop doing that mission. And I see the same thing with, with what you're doing. I mean, you're, you're, you, you believe that there is a future for, for digital fashion and, you know, you don't know exactly what it is, but you want to be one of the people that figures it out. And I, I think that's amazing. Thank you. And I totally believe that. And I think, you know, um, one of the biggest, I'll say very quickly, one of the biggest things that made me most happy after our collection was the people who understood its reception back to me. You know, I've been asked to speak at Christie's next month at the Art and Tech Summit. And for me, that was something really exciting because I've been speaking at NFT conferences for a long time. And I think, as we all know, it's kind of, especially right now, the same group of 500 people. And if you're on your Twitter, you think there are a ton of people. It's really just 500 of us. But the fact that Christie's had invited me to talk about this I was like, this is going to be a room of completely different collectors. And this is a major auction house, one, uh, the biggest in the world, arguably, saying that the work that I do is high craft or high art. And for me, that's the beginning of a game changer. It's one signal of many, but that for me was very, very interesting. And I, I hope that if at least one of those people who didn't believe this was craft comes out of there and is like, okay, maybe it is, then I've done you know, more than enough work. Yeah. And, and as Brees reminded us yesterday, and, you know, the luxury business knows this very well, everyone is not supposed to like it, right? You're, you're always, you know, appealing to a small core audience. So we, we have, we're over time. Um, and I thank you very much for staying over time with us. And we love, uh, you know, I, I, I think, I think, you know, and the audience is going to, you know, love hearing you, you know, contextualize what it is you're doing, because I think that, um, you know, digital fashion is either a head scratcher or a world of possibility, depending on who you are. And um, I think that, you know, you're, you're, you're so great at like sort of contextualizing it and showing, 
what it could be, but also, you know, reminding us that it could be many things. Um, and, and that, you know, ultimately, you know, creativity, uh, will reign supreme and the customer will decide just like we have in the traditional fashion world. We do have a set of questions that we're asking everyone as a part of this series. Zoe, you want to ask Danny the first one? Yeah. So, uh, the, the, the first of the last questions is what does creative custody mean to you? I think creative custody both means owning my own creative process. So no large brand is then going to go and steal it from me, say it's their work, et cetera, et cetera. But then also owning my own artistic assets. So assets that I consume and assets that I create. For me, that is what creative custody is. And for, you know, you've, you've made a move from, a, um, you know, a, a traditional job in tech, still an innovation role, but, you know, fully into the world of digital assets and Web3. For someone who's listening, who would like to make that leap from whatever they're doing today um, to a world of digital assets, Web3, we could say creative custody, what's the advice you would give them? I think it's really that, as cheesy as it sounds, right now we have this big innovation chasm. You can go in and you can find a niche and you can become an expert in it. I think one of the funniest things about the general Web3 metaverse crypto space, it's a benefit and it's a blessing and a curse, but that it's full of people who are incredibly young. Because the maximum amount of experience you can have at this is around 10 years. And so if you find your niche, literally, you don't have to run full speed ahead. I had my normal job for 10 months, but absolutely run at it. Become a subject matter expert. You have the advantage that it is very easy for you to become the subject matter expert comparatively, okay, traditional finance people have been at for 50, 60 years. You could literally in two years become the subject matter expert. And so it's really take that leap. And also around that, put yourself out there. Do it anonymously. Do it it non-anonymously. But this space functions on Twitter, on Substack. If I would have never written that newsletter, I would have never been where I am today. So I think those are my kind of my two big pieces. Yeah, that, that's a great point. It's true. Like being in, in, an, in an innovative space is kind of cheating, isn't it? You have to have um, a higher risk profile. But yeah, I'm not going to become an expert at, um, you know, finance or race car driving. But, uh, you know, I can I can spend a couple of years and become, an, you know, a pretty, pretty good at, uh, at, at at something that's only been around for a couple of years, right? Um, I always talk, I mean, skateboarding, I was definitely not the best skateboarder in in my town, but I had been skateboarding longer than most people. So I was pretty okay. Um, You know, so sometimes you just have the advantage of time. All right, we have one last uh, question for you. You know, I I, I believe that, you know, there are many things that are part of the, the future of our lives. You know, I think that our government documents will be digital documents, you know, 15 years from now. And I don't think that we'll be using, you know, credit rails to pay for, you know, to pay for things with our cell phone at the local um, at the local bodega, you know, 15 years from now. What's something that you think is just sort of impossible to imagine today? Um, by the way, I just want to say we're recording this in the craziest week when Mischief released a microscopic handbag. Tiny handbag. Oh, I love the tiny handbag so much. <gasps> Obviously, I love the tiny. I mean, we were literally talking about Mischief it's... yesterday. 
and how obsessed I am with mischief. Let's now, take this. Let's take this to its logical conclusion, right? We know that handbags or luxury handbags aren't bought for utility. So let's make an anti-utility handbag. Like God bless but, mischief, right? Okay. You know what so, it also is? well, what do we and micro bag trend? Try, bag, I I have a handbag. Yeah, micro bag. Micro bag. But now it's minute bag. Well, you said micro bag, right? Well, here, let me show you a micro, micro, bag. micro bag. Like, come on, we could just, we should just do an episode where we go through all of Mischief's products and like put our heads in yeah. our hands and cry how good they Please. are. Like Please. the best art project ever. Please. Okay. okay. Our, our, our love for Mischief, we can, we'll, we'll share next week. The, um, but the, uh, the, and also this week though, Louis Vuitton has, has released, you know, a, a, a trunk, which, which comes with, an NFT program behind it, along with many other kind of exclusives and uh, and things. So this is, you know, what what an uh, what an amazing week this is. But that's just this week in 2023. So what's the thing that you think out there? You know, by the way, if you'd have asked me about these two things three weeks ago, I'm not sure I could have predicted them. So let's let's say what 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 do we think is coming? You know, 10 or 15 years from now. Okay, this is this is a much harder question. I also think it's very important to um, to predict on this podcast. Uh, that micro tiny miniature bag is going to go for more money than the Louis Vuitton NFT trunk that is this big. That's my bet. So the, the number to beat is 39,000 euros. I think it's easily, easily like six figures plus, easily. Tiny mini bag. Um, interesting. Okay, so I... So... I wish I could get a, give a better answer to this, but something that I've been thinking about a lot that I think, I don't think it's 10, 15 years away. I think it's quite soon. One of my favorite essays that I've read recently is the one on geeks, mops, and sociopaths. So it's this idea that a trend is created by a group of geeks who really care about the trend. And then mops come in and mops, are, as the name suggests, they basically mop up the culture. Like they don't, okay, for example, they don't really care about, you know, classic rock, but they think classic rock seems like a cool thing to be involved in. And the sociopaths come in and they see the mops and they go, hmm, this seems like a lucrative business. And they build businesses better than the geeks can because the geeks are building for love, the sociopaths are building for money. And something that I got very worried about recently was I was thinking about AI and I was like, when do we just start having these hyper-tailored business models where it's identify niche X on Twitter, build product Y, automatically iterate? So I think AI-born businesses especially with like the advent of things, especially, especially with the advent of digital goods, never mind things like drop shipping, are an inevitability soon. And I think it's going to be interesting because I think I'd like to say something you know, really powerful, like only true, true creativity will be able to compete with that. But I don't know if you have the ability to read enough data and iterate in that way. I think, I think it's a scary world. Yeah. And well, I also think that it depends on the, on the sector, right? I mean, look at, you know, you know, what, what, I can't remember the numbers, but if, you know, if Amazon starts to dominate a market, then they, then they make the product themselves and they white label it. Right. So you, you that's a, it's in some ways a, a version of that, which is like, there's almost an algorithm for, for product creation. Um, I think also though, this is why the kinds of things that you're doing and we're doing are important because AI delivers us digital abundance and blockchains deliver us digital scarcity. Right. Um, you know, I think that you'll be able to have an AI version of this podcast with ChatGPT six. Right. It will know enough about us to be able to, you know, to, to, 
to have this pot to have this conversation without us. Um, but that's also why you know we will have microphones with attestation, and we will have ways of of you know of our devices telling us if the person that we are talking to is really the person um, that we are talking to. And you will you will be you know you will be using um, you know cryptography and security, and you know and and things. Uh, you know, and, and ways of that if there was an edit, you could, um, you know, attest who made the edit, right? You know, and you can, and you can actually validate those kind of things. So I, I agree with you. Um, and I think that, that probably, you know, that, that blockchain is the other side of that coin. And I think kind of the final point to make about around that, that I do genuinely, genuinely believe is I think human art forms are compelling to humanity because of the human stories behind them, especially for people like you and me. I like to read about the collections I buy. If I listen to a song, you're then maybe watching the Amy Winehouse documentary and wow, look at that passion behind it. Well, you know, this podcast, it's us telling true stories of things that have happened to us and that's hopefully why it's resonant. And so, yeah, increasingly it's going to be proof that this was a conversation between us because as many cool things as AI can do, it doesn't, it doesn't convey that sense of connection and that sense of relatability that I think is crucial to the arts plus, plus, plus. Well, at the end of the day, you know, human beings are story consuming creatures. Mm. Um, and that's fundamentally what, what luxury does is it, you know, it, it tells stories and actually that AI generated product might be great in the like, Hey Alexa, I need some double A batteries kind of way. Right. Um, you know, like that, that's actually, you know, I, I don't want to hear a story about that. I just want the batteries to show up at my doorstep. At the same time, to your point about fashion, if I'm wearing something that expresses my individually individuality and my identity and my sense of belonging, then I do want the story. So, you know, and I think that we already have that bifurcation in our lives, you know, between kind of at Unilever, they have a, a, a saying, look, you know, death in the middle, look left, look right. And that's probably the reason, right? Because what we want is either total convenience, right? And just commodity or total storytelling and differentiation. Mm. Um, so, you know, I don't know, I don't know where that, that leads us. Um, but as there's a, there's a guy who's a retail futurist, um, named Doug, uh, and his last name is escaping me. I'm sorry, Doug. Uh, but, but, you know, he, he always, he always says, um, you know, that the more time we spend on our phone, the more we value in person, uh, you know, in person experiences. So there's this dichotomy between, you know, the, 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 you know, the technology that we have available to us, you know, makes these, you know, in-person react, you know, um, things kind of unnecessary, which also makes them like more special, more premium, mm. more valuable. Ooh, I love that. Thank you so much, Danny. Yeah, uh, thank, thank you for you. spending so much time with us. Super interesting. Um, you know, really love what you're doing, love the passion for it. And um, really appreciate you explaining it to us in the audience. Thank you so, so, so much. This content is provided for informational purposes only and is the sole expression of our opinion and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment or tax advice. Do your own research. Any loss or profit is your sole responsibility. Stay safe.